0: Well, hello and welcome. My name is uh, Nicholas. I'm the creative arts pastor here at Fountain Springs. For those of you in the room, glad you're here. If you're joining us remotely, uh, we're just so glad that you're with us. We are in week two of a series that we're calling God, and we're just kind of taking a closer look at some of the attributes of God. And I think that when we talk about God, all of our conversations begin with three questions. The first question would be Is there a God? The second question would be, what is God like? And then the third question, what does God think of me? I think in, the, in that order, uh, when we ask questions uh, about God. And uh, we've been looking at a particular verse in the Bible from the book of Exodus And there's a story that's happening around this verse that sort of like the context of this story includes those questions as well. Is there a God? What is God like? And what does God think of me or us? And I say that to say that these are not new questions. If you're asking these questions or have, maybe someday will again, Moses and the Israelites were asking them as well. And their story was a little bit more unique. God had just delivered the Israelites from Egyptian captivity through these uh, quite remarkable plagues and miracles. He had brought them to the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army was closing in, dividing the sea. They walked across on dry land while they were in the wilderness, hungry. God brought food that fell from the skies. And when they were thirsty, God brought water from a rock, and all of this is fine enough except for the people are still wandering and they're still wondering what kind of God is he Moses uh, develops a little frustration with these people and we see it play out in Exodus chapter 17 verse seven. I'll read this for you uh, just after water had come out of a rock uh, to uh, hydrate these very thirsty people Moses says uh, He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word Massah means testing and the word Meribah means quarreling. And what is their question? Is God here? What is God like? Is there a God? What is God's relationship with us in the midst of all of this? And then God brings Moses to the top of a mountain, just a couple chapters later in Exodus 20, and he gives his people the law, these commands that would help them live the kind of life they are created to live. But when Moses returns from the mountain, he finds the people worshiping a golden calf as a representation of Yahweh. And he quickly smashes the tablets to avoid the Jewish people entering into this covenant. Then he calls together a bunch of people with swords and they, uh, uh, they sort of kill all of the offenders. It's a brutal scene. But then Moses ascends the mountain a second time to receive a second set of tablets. And when he does, he makes a more specific request of God. We find it in Exodus chapter 33, verse 13. Moses said, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Teach me your ways. What kind of God are you? Is God a God of rules and consequences? Is he a God of laws that must be followed? Is that it? And in the very next chapter, Exodus 34, against the te- again, the text for this series, God sort of sets the record straight. And he gives his response. So I want to ask you to read these verses with me from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Read these aloud if you would. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. Thank you to those of you who participated uh, with that reading. It's important for us to pause and consider just how important these verses are. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 become like a motif and they're mentioned again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Anytime someone says, tell us about the God of Yahweh, some version of this is what's said in response Now, let me pause just for a second to say those last few phrases about like generational sin, sins being handed down. I don't have time to talk about it today, but I would point you to, if you want to write it down, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 2 gives a little clarification on who is responsible uh, for sin. But I'd like to spend the rest of my time talking with you about the second attribute that sort of showed up in Exodus 34 6. We read that Yahweh the Lord is compassionate and filled with mercy. In order to talk about mercy, I need to talk about a couple other words as well. Three words in total, justice, grace, and mercy. You kind of can't understand one without understanding the others. Now justice is primarily a legal term. Justice, I think the best definition we could use here, justice is when a person gets what they deserve. No more, no less. Grace and mercy are quite different. I think you know this. This shouldn't be a huge surprise to you. But grace and mercy, they're quite different. And they're terms that overlap quite a bit. At least in English, they do. See, sometimes we would define grace as, uh, well, the words have, um, we almost use like a plus and minus system when we're defining them. Grace is often defined as when we, when we get what we do not Deserve It has like an additive connotation to it, like think plus sign, right? Grace is when we get what we do not deserve, and mercy is when we do not get what we do deserve. It has this subtractive quality to it. But in Hebrew, the words are much more like synonymous and interchangeable. And it's why, if any of you have different translations of the Bible than the one that we just happened to read, in Exodus 34, 6, compassion and grace and mercy, they're just kind of used interchangeably. All all kinds of different words show up there. It sort of means the same thing. When we read mercy in the Bible, it includes what God gives us and what God sort of uh, relieves us of in terms of suffering and mercy also includes an element of favor usually favor um, from a stronger party to a weaker party who has no claim no right to expect favorable treatment now for as popular as the word is in mainstream culture we don't really want justice nobody wants justice We don't like getting what we deserve because we know, all of us, that we deserve punishment. So the problem is in the mathematics of justice, there is perfection and there is guilt. And every one of us knows what we've done, even if no one else knows those things. None of us are perfect. We prefer not justice, but something more like justifications or excuses or explanations or narrative, right? Like, But let me tell you the story about why I did these wrong things. None of us want justice. There's a fantastic quote by G.K. Chesterton, who is a British author and and philosopher and, and Christian thinker, and he said, children are innocent and love justice, while most of us are wicked and naturally prefer mercy. For all of us, Uh, we reach a point in our lives where we start to behave in ways that we're not always proud of, right? Does anyone want to volunteer to have like a highlight reel of all of your worst moments played on this screen for the world to see? How about just for this room to see, right? I I know I certainly don't because I know the things that I've done that other people don't know about. Justice is necessary to protect the innocent. Children need justice. They need to live in a just world. But mercy is necessary to pardon the guilty. And we need mercy because we are guilty. So to talk about mercy, I think um, we have to begin by asking, is God a merciful God? Is God merciful or is God like the other gods? He just lays out a bunch of rules and expects us to obey. I think we'd be probably best served to just take God's word for it What we just read in Exodus 34, what does he say? What does God want us to know about him? What are his ways? Well, he tells us he is a God of compassion and grace and mercy, forgiving iniquities, rebellion, and sin to a thousand generations, right? I don't know how well we've grasped the idea that God is a merciful God. I wonder how well you know that God is on your side, that God is not angry at you, that God is not out to get you. See, after the giving of those first stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, it almost seemed like Yahweh was like the other gods, right? Like, here are the rules, break them, and I will punish you. But with the giving of the second tablets and with God's sort of self-revelation, we begin to realize that laws are not meant to punish us, but to protect us. God is not looking for a reason to keep you out, to exclude you. He's not looking for a reason to get mad at you. And if you thought that God was some sort of rule enforcer or bean counter or like cosmic probation officer who's trying to pounce on you when you mess up, this is not the God of the Bible. But the creator of the universe, the creator of you and the creator of me is revealing to us how we are supposed to live. And that is, in many ways, the purpose of the law. If you live according to the law, you will protect yourself from a great deal of destruction and heartache and disappointment and in pain. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't hurt other people. Respect your parents, right? All of these things are the provisions that are put in place so that you can learn how to thrive as a human being. They're not so that God can find a reason to get mad at you. And I wonder if we understand that about mercy. That God is a God of mercy, not punishment. Actions have consequences. Yes, they do. But God is not mad at you when you break the law. God's wrath is like holy and loving. He is compassionate and merciful, in part because he knows that you couldn't handle the consequences if you had to. But let's say we can answer the question about whether or not God is merciful. Is God merciful? Let's say all of you are with me on this, that he is. I think the second question I want to ask is far more difficult to answer. It's the question of whether or not I am worthy of mercy. Am I worthy of mercy? The question isn't, are we worthy of mercy? Or is humanity? Or are others? This has to be sort of first person. You have to ask yourself, do you think that you're worthy of mercy? Why would God be good to me? I know how guilty I am. I am. Even if I can wrap my mind around God as a merciful God, believing that I am worthy of mercy, that it extends to me, reaches to me, is another matter entirely. And I think our guilt is a bigger obstacle to overcome. I think that some of us wrestle with what I would call acquired guilt. This is a guilt that is uh, the result of our own actions. You know what you've done. You know what you're capable of. You know the websites that you visit that other people don't know about. You know the way that you treat your wife when no one is around. You know how you love your children. You know the lies that you tell, the gossip that you spread. You know who you are. You can fool everybody else around you, but you know, and that guilt is crippling. It's your own fault. There may be any number of like contributing factors or excuses, but you knew what you were doing was wrong and you did it anyway. What kind of person does that? These are questions we ask ourselves. Acquired guilt is not easy to shake. We don't think of ourselves often better than others uh, to ourselves. We might say those things, but we know who we are. We We know the worst versions of ourselves. Some of us, though, we struggle with inherited guilt. And this is guilt that isn't your fault. These are actions that someone else committed. It might be better to call it like, almost like um, uh, inherited wounds. Something you were born with, something you inherited along the way, probably at an early age, and these wounds were not your fault. Often the people who were supposed to love you the most were the people who didn't. And the effect of that, you could hold off for a while, but the older you get, the more you start to ask questions about that. Am I deserving of mercy? Well, what does it mean that the people who were supposed to love me the most didn't? If I'm not worthy of their love, how could I be worthy of anything? Some of us have acquired guilt. Others of us have inherited guilt. And when it comes to inherited guilt, here's the thing. I could tell you a million times, yeah, 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 but God is merciful and God loves you, but you've told yourself that A million times already and if it were as simple as saying the words you would have found a way to get past it by now guilt is an obstacle to accepting God's mercy what do we do with this guilt do we believe that God wants to punish us for our sins that his mercy is for other people or do we believe that God is a God of mercy for us It may seem like everything that I've said so far is easy to accept. But I can tell you that throughout the Old Testament, throughout the life of Jesus, and throughout the early church, trying to shake punishment theology was central to the message of Jesus. It was central to the mission of Paul. How do we convince people that God is not mad at them? There, again, there are consequences for your action. Uh, last week, Pastor Chris um, talked about a story in John chapter 9, right? Uh, about uh, the blind man. And uh, the disciples are walking with him. Here's this blind man. And what did they ask Jesus? Teacher, why is this man blind? Was it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how it works. Uh, neither of those are the reasons. One chapter before that, John chapter 8. Jesus is hanging out by himself. Some teachers of the law bring to him a woman who was caught in adultery. And the text says that they stand her before everyone for all to see. And they say, teacher, Moses, the law of Moses says this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And we're told that Jesus sort of bends down and writes in the dirt. And it's very mysterious. No one knows what he wrote. I think it's at least possible that he was reminding the crowd of the kind of God That they serve. Maybe he wrote out like this Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are very well known verses in Jewish history. They're called the 13 attributes. Maybe he wrote those out to remind everybody so that when they're saying, hey, she broke the law, she needs to be punished for it, Jesus again is saying, that's not how this works. And then what does he say? I'll tell you what, let's come to a compromise. Whichever one of you have never sinned, right? is worthy of demanding justice, why don't you become the one who throws the first stone? And they don't. They all walk away. Jesus says, hey, there's no one left to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. But he's not interested in punishing her. He wants her to receive mercy. This mercy over the law becomes a central theme throughout the New Testament. The early church is trying to communicate this. God is not a God of laws before he is a God of mercy. Of course, it matters if you sin. Of course, sin is destructive. Please do not take uh, something that I'm not saying from what I'm saying. But God is a God of mercy. I want you to think about the way that this is demonstrated in the life of Paul. The book of Acts uh, focuses almost its entire content on this conversion of a man named Saul who changes both his name and like the trajectory of his life through this powerful conversion experience. And he begins telling everybody about Jesus. And what does Paul seem to know about Jesus? Not very much. No mention of his miracles. No mention of his parables. No mention of the Sermon on the Mount. No mention of a virgin birth. no, No conversations, at least in the beginning, no conversations about how to be a good person, a moral person, none of that. You know what he has to say? God loves you at your worst, Romans 5. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, Romans 8. God wants to make you new, Romans 12. Paul wants to say that Jesus is is bringing the dead back to life. Those who are weak are finding strength. Those who are lost are being found. Those who are foolish are finding wisdom. Those who are on the outside are being brought to the inside. That's what he wants to talk about. Not punishment not doctrine, so much so that he has to like go back and write letters to the church and say, oh, and by the way, you can't sleep with each other's wives and like you can't drink too much and don't practice witchcraft. Because that wasn't what he was trying to say in the beginning. He was trying to say, do you know that God is a God of mercy? For everyone who will call on him and especially those who seem to think they deserve it the least. When I was in eighth grade, I was at a conference and I heard this speaker tell a story. And at the conclusion of the story, I made a decision to um, uh, to accept like a call to ministry, except I conveniently forgot about it for about a decade. Uh, and until God, you know, reminded me of the decision that I made. But I want to conclude by telling you that story right now that I think helps us understand how God is a God of mercy. There was a Christian speaker and writer, Uh, named Tony, who uh, was flying to Hawaii to speak at a conference. And because he had flown in from the East Coast, he woke up ready for breakfast at about 3 a.m. But the only restaurant that was open was a little diner down a back alley in Honolulu. So Tony goes in and he sits down at the counter and this big guy uh, from behind the counter comes over and asks, yeah, what do you want? And uh, Tony says he kind of took a cue and decided he'd keep it simple. And he said, I'll have a donut and a black coffee. And so he sits down and he's sitting there eating his donut and sipping on his coffee. And right at 3.30 a.m., the door opens and in walk eight or nine prostitutes who have just finished their nightly shifts. Four sit down on one side of him, five sit down on the other. Feeling a little bit self-conscious about being a Christian speaker at a conference in town he decides maybe it'd be a good idea for him to kind of slip away to another table and just as he's about to do it the woman next to him says to her friend you know what tomorrow's my birthday and I'm gonna be 39 and her friend sort of snaps back in response so what do you want from me do you want a birthday party huh you want me to get you a cake do you want me to sing happy birthday to you The woman replied, no, I I don't want anything from you. I'm just saying it's my birthday, that's all. And I've never really had a birthday party before. Well, when Tony heard this, he said he got an idea. He waited until all the women left, and then he asked the guy at the counter, whose name turned out to be Harry, he said, do they come in here every night? Yep, he answered every night. The one right next to me, Tony asked, does she come in here every night? Yeah, yeah, Harry said, that's Agnes. Uh, she's here every night. She's been coming here for years. Why do you want to know? And Tony says, well, because I just heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you think? Do you think maybe we could throw a little party for her right here in the diner? And a smile kind of creeps over this big guy's face. And he says, man, that's great. I think that's a great idea. I like it. He turns to the kitchen and he says, hey, Annie, come on out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow is Agnes' birthday, and he wants to throw a party for her right here. So his wife comes out, and she says, oh, mister, that's terrific. She says, you know, Agnes, I, I know what she does is bad, but she's one of the good ones. She's always looking for a reason to help people. Nobody ever does anything nice for her, so they make plans, Tony's going to come back at 2.30 in the morning with decorations, and Harry says he's going to make a cake. And the next morning at 2.30 a.m., Tony walks in with crepe paper and balloons and streamers and a sign made of big pieces of cardboard that say, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Well, by this point, Harry had started spreading the word around town to other prostitutes that a party was happening. And by about 3.15, the place is just like filled wall to wall with hookers. And at 3.30 on the dot, the door swings open, in walks Agnes and her friends, and Tony has everybody ready, and they all shout, and they scream, happy birthday, Agnes, and she's absolutely stunned. She almost falls over. And then the birthday cake is brought out, and all the candles are glowing, and that's when she just completely breaks down. And she's sobbing and she's crying and Harry trying to, you know, stop himself from crying says, come on, Agnes, blow out the candles. So she pulls herself together and she blows them out and everyone cheers and yells, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. She looks down at the cake and just kind of stares at it sort of slowly and softly, softly says, look, um, if it's all right with you, I mean, if, if it's not a problem, uh, Is it okay if I just keep the cake for a little while? Is it okay if we don't eat it right away? And so Harry doesn't know what to say, so he just kind of shrugs and says, Sure, if that's what you want to do, Agnes, we don't have to eat it right now. You can take it home if you want, he says. And she says, Oh, could I? Could I? She looks at Tony, she says, Listen, I live just a couple doors down. And I want to take the cake home to show my mom. I'll be right back, I promise. And so she gets off her stool, and she picks up the cake, and she kind of carries it out, you know, like it's um, the Holy Grail. And uh, everybody's just sort of watching in stunned silence. And when the door closes behind her, nobody's quite sure what to do. And so they all look at each other, and they all look at Tony. And he, he grabs a chair, and he brings it to the middle of the diner, and he stands on top of it, and he says, how about we pray for Agnes. And there in this hole-in-the-wall, greasy spoon with half the hookers in Honolulu, Tony and Harry bow their heads to pray. They pray for Agnes and for her life and for her safety. That God would be good to her. That she would know she is Beautiful and loved and forgiven And when he's finished uh, praying, Harry leans over to Tony and he says, "Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of a church do you preach at?" And Tony said, "I preach at the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3:30 in the morning.) <laughs> I wonder, if we're honest, how many of us can relate to Agnes. Um, I don't know for you when questions of your worth started. But for me, I was seven. And... I looked at the lives of kids around me, and their parents, and I I knew my story, and I just couldn't stop feeling like whatever it is they're made of, like the parts that make them up, it's, it's different from me. And whatever it was that had happened to me had happened because there was something wrong with me. And in years to come, I would acquire plenty of my own guilt through my own sins. But the biggest obstacle to me coming to God by far was accepting that God had any interest in me, that I was worthy of his mercy. God's mercy might be for other people, but there's no way it's for me. And what God said to me is perhaps what he's saying to some of you today. That's not how it works. whatever it is that has happened to you, whatever it is that you have done. Maybe you've never known that God was on your side. You've never known that God longs to be gracious to you and that the God of mercy wants to heal you from your acquired and your inherited guilt. Maybe today, maybe today, you need to make a decision to surrender your life to the God of compassion and mercy Forgiving sin and rebellion and iniquities to a thousand generations. Slow to anger, abounding in love. Maybe today you make it, need to make a decision to resurrender surrender your life because um, you've taken that guilt back on yourself. And maybe you've been walking for far too long alone and the time has come for you to give your life to the one who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Maybe today is your day. So we're going to sing a song here in a minute. And while we do, if you would like to make a decision to accept Jesus into your heart, the God who loves you, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to stand up where you are. No one's going to think it's weird, I promise. I want you to stand up where you are, and I want you to pray something like this. Very simple, something like this. God, I am guilty, but you are merciful. Forgive my sins. I give my life to you. We're going to sing, and the opportunity is yours.